Turning your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. How many of you have been in church a few years? Been serving God for a while? Is there anybody in this room who's never heard of David and Goliath? I've never heard of David and Goliath. If you've never heard of David and Goliath, Ruthie will be doing children's church later. And First of all, I owe you an apology about David and Goliath. I, um, in my youth, I, I got caught up one day. You know, David's father said, take this, you know, take this food to your brothers. They're in this valley, and, and the armies of Israel lined up against the Philistines, and I want you to take this food to them and find out how they're doing. Do you remember that part of the story? <clears throat> we never heard David ever comment on Goliath until it just so happens that in the Word of God, right after David hears what the person gets who kills Goliath, what they get, then he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It struck me as being funny, you know, at the time. How many of you know, if God takes you out behind the woodshed, you don't have to, you don't have to ask. Did I just get taken out behind the woodshed? No, you know when God takes you out behind the woodshed, don't you? He took me behind the woodshed on that because I preached a whole sermon on that David was an ambitious man. Now, you read the Word of God, you know that he was ambitious, right? You know that. But that wasn't what God was wanting me to focus on. But twice in 1 Samuel 17, he barks out about, about Goliath after he hears what you get if you kill him. Looks suspicious, doesn't it? See, Father, they thought it was suspicious looking too. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, that wasn't what God was trying to put across. I've gone over chapter 16 and 17 so many times now that I know that the Holy Spirit's told me that that wasn't me. That was all you. You understand what I'm saying? You ever been told by the Holy Ghost, that's all you. That's not me. Sometimes we overthink things, right? But I got looking at this chapter. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, we have this young man named David that when you look at chapter 16... We find that Samuel was told by God to go to the house of Jesse and amongst his sons, I will pick a king. I will choose a king. You go there, call them all together, and I'll show you the one. And as soon as Samuel saw the older brother of David, he said, well, surely this is the guy, right? And God said, no, you're judging by outward appearance. I judge by what's on the inside of a person. Now, how many of you don't have to blurt it out loud, know some of the things that David did wrong in his life? Let's just tap that and get it over with and move on. Everybody goes straight to, to David and Bathsheba, right? <clears throat> Do you think for one minute the grace did not exist in the Old Testament? Grace existed in the Old Testament. It just wasn't known as the age of grace. We're living in it, right? David had a man killed and took his wife. And God judged them for that. And their first child died. Do you remember that? All right. That was judgment in the Old Testament. That was God. God was not going to put a stamp of approval on what David did. Does that make sense? But do not forget that the next child was used by God from that union and the lineage of Christ went through that family. Do you understand what I'm saying? Through David and Bathsheba. 
God is only vengeful against those that come against his children. Are you hearing me? God is vengeful, very protective of his children. But when it comes to his children, he will discipline. Amen? If he did not discipline, he said, I, I don't love you. If I don't love you, I won't discipline you. If he loves you, he disciplines you, right? And God disciplined David, did he not? Now, what I'm leading up to in this, in the beginning of this message, I call this, it's all about God. How many times have you heard me say that? Even this story that's, that's so focused on David, it's all about what God saw in David. And a lot of people looked at David. Samuel looked at David. Amen. His older brother looked at him. And by the way, what the older brother accused David of, he was the one guilty of it, not David. Isn't that just like people get mad, get angry, and they say mean and hateful things about you? They're really describing themselves. You shouldn't take it to heart, especially when you're doing God's work. They'll cast all manner of things at you. Don't listen to them. Amen? So we got, you know, Jesse looked at David. Samuel looked at David. His older brother looked at David. Saul looked at David. Amen? The whole army of Israel ended up looking at David. And Goliath looked at David, and every one of them had an opinion. The only one that mattered was Father's opinion. It's all about him. It's about what he thinks. It's about what he wants. We never should forget it. We can never forget that. Amen? You, you, you get bogged down in all the things that are going on in the world around you right now. And maybe you, and, and I don't, I've never seen anything like this. And you know what? I don't care anymore. I only care about what he wants. That's it. We're getting through this. You hear me? We're getting through this. We're living, we're breathing. I, I hate the fact that you've got to sit there and look at me through a mask or whatever or separate yourself so far from everybody else. That you, if you get far enough away from people and you can't wear a mask, get, get, move around, look to the right and to the left. There's a lot of room here and take it off. Just put it back on when you go back to mix with people. It's not complicated. Amen? And we're getting through this, right? All right. Now, I'm not going to read, you know, the whole 17th, um, book or chapter here in First Samuel is only 58 verses long. I don't need to read all that, do I? How about if we tap the highlights, all right? Do you know what this is a story of? This is a story of apparent power. How many of you know that the giant looked big? The giant was powerful. He had great big weapons. And some of the weapons were so big and weighed so much, he had a guy, an assistant, that helped carry his shield for him and things like that. I've never needed anybody to help me carry my stuff before, really. Not really. Even if I had to make more than one trip, I could handle it. You know what I'm saying? But Goliath had somebody to help him carry. So I said, 1 Samuel 17 turns us back to the story of apparent power confronted by what David looked like compared to the giant is apparent weakness. Does that make sense to you? Apparent power confronted by apparent weakness. Uh, we've been considering this. I mean, I mean, we, I've been considering this, I think, um, for a long time now. And God finally brought me back around to this. In the course um, of our conversation this morning, we've already been reminded that in 1 Samuel chapter 16, in verse 7, 
It's where God has to remind his servant Samuel that he shouldn't consider the appearance of Eliab in terms of his height or his externals because he explains. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at and that he explains what he means by that. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, there's a cause for great encouragement and great challenge in that. The encouragement, of course, is that God is not, uh, he, he's not put off by many of the things about our lives. God's not put off by those things. God's there to help you with those things. Don't run from God. He doesn't set us aside because of the things that others may choose to use as a basis of disqualification, and there's encouragement in that. There's a challenge, too, that we cannot hide from God the reality of what's going on on the inside of us. And that there is in each of our lives a distinction between reality and reputation. Reality is what God knows. Reputation is what others think they know about you. Whether that's the reputation of a person in a pulpit or the reputation of a person in the pew, God knows our thoughts, God knows our motives, God knows how much life there is behind the curtain. Amen? And we do well routinely to not only remind ourselves of the principle, but to pray again with the psalmist. David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is a wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How many times have you heard me say, just be honest with God? It amazes me that in counseling that a lot of people don't want to you know, say what's really wrong. And if you talk to them long enough and you get them to open up a little bit, they don't talk to God either because they don't want to say it to him. They don't want to put it into words to him. You're too late. You might as well talk to God about it because he already knows. And if you can't talk to him about it, you can't talk to anybody about it. So that was the first point of this message. We cannot hide from God the reality of what's going on inside of us. Now, we can only assume that David, by whatever mechanisms and means in the pilgrimage of his young life to this point, had fastened onto this truth in such a way that he stands out from the rest of the company as being a man after God's own heart. Blows me away. David, after all he did, was called... Two things, a man after God's own heart, and, and in one place it calls him a friend of God. Think about that. David was a friend to God. I, I think that's mind-boggling. Uh, that's why in verse 11, when they heard the cries of the Philistines, Goliath, oops, i got to back up here a little bit. Uh, a man after God's own heart, and a man who views things in a way that puts him out of kilter with the way everyone else views things. So that when you take that verse, you fold the page over, move forward to chapter 17, you realize that the armies of Israel were looking at things from a purely human perspective. Focus again with me on all the words that David was using that day, and they were different words than anybody else. They were different than Saul's. They were different than his older brothers. They were different than the soldiers who were looking at him. And his words were different than the words that Goliath used. But they were all speaking from their perceptions of David. And their thinking was messed up. 
I don't know any better way to say it. Their thinking was messed up. That's why in verse 11, when they heard the cries of the Philistine Goliath, all the Israelites were dismayed and they were terrified. Don't, don't answer this out loud, but, you know, with everything that's going on around us and you, you look at, you know, it, illness, the potential for illness, the damage to the economy, the damage that some states, and I thank God that we're not suffering that here. I don't care what you say, we're not suffering in churches the way they're suffering in places like California where the governor's trying to tell them they can't sing in church. Look, when they start telling us we can't sing and worship together in a room when we're together, is the day I go to jail. I'll go to jail before I let them tell me that we can gather here, but we by God can't worship. They're not going to do that. Do you hear my words? Those are the words of your pastor, all right? I know what the inside of a jail looks like. You say, well, Pastor Dennis, how do you know? You've been there? Yeah, I've been there. I was a cop. I put lots of people in jail. I know, though, this about me. I would take people to jail that had broke the law. I make no apologies for that. And I would process them, and sometimes it would take two hours to get them in the jail. And I was stuck in there for just two hours. I did not like it. I'm just being honest with you. I don't like the jail. But I know that I would go there and I would get behind those bars and be arrested if they tell me we can't worship. Do you hear me? We're going to worship. Caesar cannot stop us from worshiping. You know, they said they took prayer out of the schools. Yeah, they took corporate prayer out of the schools, but they could not take it out of the hearts of the children who wanted to pray. Amen? So all the Israelites were dismayed and they were terrified. It was the same perspective that marked out the response of David's brother, and particularly Eliab. You'll remember down in verse 28 of 1 Samuel 17, uh, he tells David, I know how conceited you are, and I know how wicked your heart is. Do you know what Eliab just said to David? I'm like God. I know what's in your heart. Ooh. Jesus warned against that. Jesus said, call no man a fool, for example. Because in the Old Testament it says, only the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So for you to call another man or woman, another person a fool, is for you to say, I'm like God, and I know what's in your heart. And you are not God. Amen? We're not God. The fact is that he didn't know how wicked his heart was, and he was dead wrong in any case. It's only God who searches and knows our hearts. It's only God who knows our motives. That, incidentally, is why we ought not to be too concerned about cultivating or being debilitated by the court of human opinion. How many of you have ever been made miserable by another human being who had a low opinion of you? Been there, done that. I'm, I'll raise my hand. I've let people's opinions in the past affect my entire day and my demeanor and all that stuff. Mm-mm-mm. Outgrow that, brother and sister. Amen? And David, somehow or another, had, a, had an even keel about him. He, when he opened his mouth that day about, about Goliath, his message never changed. It was the same all day long until Goliath was dead. No one could change his opinion, right? Eliab essentially accuses David of what was true about himself. 
And were it not for the fact that David was able to take recourse to the fact that God knows my heart, then he would have had to spend a long time arguing with Eliab. Notice he did not argue with Eliab. He turned away from Eliab and found someone who would listen to him. When Eliab would not hear his words of faith, he turned from Eliab and, and tried to find somebody who would listen to his words of faith. Because we're all moving inexorably towards the bar of God's judgment, let me back up a little bit. David, God knows my heart. Then he would have had to spend a long time arguing with Eliab. Oh, no, you don't know my heart. Oh, I can explain my heart to you, and so on. There's no indication of the fact that David defends himself. David did not waste one minute with his brother defending himself or trying to change his opinion to match his. He just went and turned and told somebody else. I know you think you know my heart. You've said to this, uh, you may have said this, or he said this to his brother. That's not my concern because you don't know my heart. And while the court of human opinion is not irrelevant, it certainly isn't to be the controlling influence in the life of God's child. David gets that in contrast to the army, in contrast to his brothers, in contrast to Saul, who viewing things from a human perspective, seeing David, seeing the giant, says to David in verse 33, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. Why not? You're only a boy. And he's been fighting. He's been a fighting man since his youth. Well, that's one perspective. You might say, now here's a sensible fellow. Here's somebody who's able to weigh things up and come to the right kind of decision. And David didn't do that. David just ignored him and went on and did what God told him to do. Here's the kind of practicality that we like in a leader. It's obvious. Total power versus total weakness. They're saying you can't go. It's the wrong perspective. And Goliath, he obviously looked at things from a human perspective. There's no surprise to that. I'm going to start moving along here because we got kind of a late start, but I want to get this across. In verse 42, the word is he's only a boy, ruddy and handsome. David was seen by Goliath, and in verse 42, this is what he thought. This is what he said. He's only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. The Bible says that Goliath despised David. When in point of fact, the real question they should have been asking was, who does he think he is? You, now, you've got to go back and read this chapter for yourself because I'm going to say something that I want you to go find it. Have you ever went looking in the Word for uh, something, a phrase, but you didn't see the phrase, but when you ended the chapter, you knew that's what they were saying? Every one of them should have been asking the question about David, who does he think he is? And if you read the chapter you find out that's what they were thinking. It is not said word for word. But do you understand that? Can you understand me saying Goliath is looking at David in so many words saying, who does he think he is? And then, and then you have Saul looking at David and, and analytically providing an opinion to David. You're, you're just a boy. You can't go up against him. Don't do it. What is he saying? Who do you think you are? Who does he think he is? Eliab is saying, who does he think he is? My little brother. Who does he think he is? 
The entire army of Israel watching David walk out there on the field are thinking, who does he think he is? I'm going to ask you a question. Who do you think you are? But I want you to apply the question differently now. It should not be who does he think he is with small case letters. It should be who does he think he is. Not who does he think he is, but who does he think he is with a capital H. Because that's what made the difference is David thought differently about who he was than everybody else on the field of battle. Who does he think he is? Because David could tell you that. David did it. Look at the book of Psalms over and over again. We know what David thought he was and he is. Amen? Some of us remain this morning neutralized on the sidelines of the battle. And it all has to do with perspective. All right, let's talk about this. The shepherd meets the giant. Now, we've seen these dialogues if they've been taking place. David and Eliab, David and Saul. And now we come to David and Goliath. Verse 41, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He kept coming at David. Isn't that just like the enemy at times? He looks David over. You can just imagine him looking down at him. But the response of David in verse 45 proves that for David, this is not between David and Goliath. Did you know that? The fight wasn't between David and Goliath. This is not even about the armies of of Philistia against the armies of Israel. For David, this is a battle between Yahweh, the living God, and what I call the non-gods of the Philistines. This is about who is God. It's the kind of battle that takes place in our contemporary society. These are a lot of, there are a lot of gods with a small g in our culture. Have you ever noticed that? You know, on Facebook, I don't, I don't always pay a lot of attention to it, but man, every now and then you see little gold nuggets, you know? You know, there are people that love their hobbies so much that their hobbies are little gods in their lives. They're gods in their lives. Their hobby means that much to them. Don't go to church. No, they use Sunday to do something different with it that has to do with their hobby. That's when you know their hobby's out of control, right? And once again, don't get mad at me. It, every now and then, everyone needs a rest break. Take a rest break. Have you not heard me say that? But staying out of church just for my hobby... People wonder about me and say, what are your hobbies? Well, man, you know, that's hard for me because what, what I have to say, people just cock their head and look at me. Man, well, I love, I love talking to God. <laughs> I mean, I love reading my Bible. I love hearing from him. I love getting things to give you from him. You see, that's my hobby. He's my hobby. He's my everything, you know. I, I just... You know, we, we look at, there are, I, I enjoy a good football game once in a while, but I'll tell you right now, I'm not real happy with the NFL. I'm just going to tell you. I'm not trying to politicize my sermon. I'm just trying to tell you, um, look, there are, there are legitimate, many legitimate concerns in this country. Can you say amen? And a lot needs to change. 
I just wish that certain anybody had not decided to choose the American flag to let it represent that. Did you understand what I'm saying? I, I, you know, I, I understand the concerns. I understand the change that needs to happen. I believe I do. I believe I have a better understanding of that than most people. But I, I don't like disrespecting the American flag. I think what it represents, you know, people are trying to tell you it represents things now that it's never represented before. And, and eat the meat, spit out the bones. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I'm trying to upset anybody. Matter of fact, if what I just said upsets you that bad, we just need to come together and pray. What have you heard me say? We can't hit anything in the road that you and me can't deal with and work through together in the name of Jesus. Amen? What I'm trying to tell you is that in the past, there have been people that loved their baseball team so much. They loved their football stars so much. They loved their NBA stars so much that they put those non-gods up on pedestals. And now, I don't know, 90 days, we haven't seen really any of them. God took them from us. Do you understand what I'm saying? God took them out of the way for a while. Does that make sense to you? So we're not worshiping those non-gods. They're, they're non-plus now. They don't, they're not in the big picture. You see what I'm saying? So what I wrote here, sports, just about every level of our culture, from little league all the way through big league. Oh, we couldn't possibly do that. Oh, we couldn't possibly go there. Oh, we couldn't possibly uh, rearrange that. Oh, we can't come at 4 o'clock. Oh, we won't be able to go at 7. Why not? Because we're worshiping. We're worshiping our God. We pay vast sums of money to pay homage to it. Some of us invest in it. Some of us gamble on it. So when we look at a situation where the battle is between the true and living God and the non-gods of the nations, we shouldn't say to ourselves, oh, I wonder what that kind of battle is like. We should be honest and say to ourselves, that's the kind of battle we're already engaged in. Every day of your life, you make choices and decisions between God and the non-gods of this world, whether you realize it or not. It's one of the things we need to put on our list of things to talk to Father about. Some of the things that, that need to be dealt with in the closet that we're not even aware of in there. And God wants to talk to us about them. So, do you believe that David went out there with a whole lot of faith? He did, didn't he? So, how many of you know that faith is not the absence of fear? It's not. I mean, you'll, you'll hear over and over again, why do you believe God knew that he needed to say 365, 366 times in the Bible, do not be afraid, fear not? Why did he need to remind us not to be afraid? Because he knew we're susceptible to it. But fear, or faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is not the dismissal of the circumstances either. Faith is facing straight on what confronts us, but coming at it from a different vantage point. That's what David did. When you choose to serve the living God from your heart, then you don't have to make choices about the non-gods that put up their hands for your attention. I'll read that again. When you choose to serve the living God from your heart, then you don't have to make choices about the non-gods that put up their hands for our attention. Now we're at the battlefield. And here are all the products of the background standing neutralized by a giant. Albeit a giant not aware of the fact that the reason 
that they are in the predicament in which they find themselves is on account of their unwillingness to do what Joshua said back in Joshua 24. Real quick, let me just say this. Go back and read Joshua 24. Do you know in the beginning of Joshua, God uses Joshua and leads the children of Israel into the promised land, and they occupy it. And near the end of the occupation, God calls a solemn assembly together and has Joshua remind those people of everything that he's done for them. And he says to the people through Joshua, don't forget. Don't forget what I have done for you. Now fast forward and the children of Israel, those same descendants are on a battlefield because they have forgotten what God was like. They had forgotten what God had done for them in the past. It's all in Joshua 24. And now the gods, the non-gods of the Philistines have got the armies of the living God completely debilitated on the field of battle. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to guess. It's 40-something days. 40-something days, David came out, gave the same speech every day to the children of Israel. He challenged them, send me your champion. We'll fight. If he wins, we're, we're defeated. If you win, we're defeated. Um, and they're so terrified, it has the same effect on them every day. It paralyzes them. And they just face each other every day. The devil screams the same thing over and over and over again and gets the same effect because those people have forgotten what God tried to tell them, their ancestors in Joshua chapter 24. By this time, they're serving the wrong gods. Now there's a big gap between reputation and reality. I think the whole of the Christian life is actually trying to close the gap, isn't it? With God's help. Paul says in Timothy, listen to this. I threw this in. This is written for me. Paul says to Timothy, you're a pastor. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. That's what Paul said to Timothy. You're a pastor. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. By God's help, close the gap between what you say and what you are. That's what the Holy Spirit says to preachers in this land today. Close the gap between what you say and what you are. He's telling the men and women of God in this country that are leaders of the church to close that gap. And, and the warning is dire. Do you hear me? So pray for your pastor, because with God's help, I'm working on closing the gap. I don't want there to be any gap between what I tell you and what I live. All right? So me and God are talking about that, and we're looking at that. And we're not going to be dismissive. Amen? Well, I'm going to have to abbreviate here a little bit. Are you getting anything out of this? I know that I started to try to abbreviate, but God's speaking to me. How about if we just stop right here for now? We'll stop right here for now. What, what have we learned so far? Let's just be honest with God. It's all about him. Amen? And let's pick up here next Sunday. And if Jesus doesn't tarry, it won't matter. How many of you know this sermon? If Jesus comes to get us, it ain't going to matter seven days from now. But it's going to matter if we're here together. Amen? All right. I'm, I'm just going to stop right there. We'll make this part one uh, on our, our website. And we'll, we'll pick up at this point next week. And we'll finish. I'm not going to wear you out. How about that? Stand with me and let me pray for you. You know, I've seen some great things in revival. I talked a little bit about that last week. We, uh, we were in a church, and 
seat about um, 800 people. And uh, God was doing some things. How many of you know when God shows up, people flock to where God is? They want to see. Human nature, God created us. Human nature wants to see the supernatural. Human nature wants to see. If God is there, what is he doing, right? Now, have you ever been to a church like this? It was, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating. You can ask my wife. She's another witness to it. 800 people would pack out that church, man, the balcony and the, the lower floors back in the 1970s. Another 400 people would mill around outside the building and try to look in the windows to see what God was doing. Does that, does that surprise you? You know, I know for a fact that some people hear me say that, and they just don't believe me. You know what? That's all right. Me, I don't care. <laughs> I was there. I saw it. You can't take that from me. Amen? I experienced it, right? I mentioned to you my grandmother getting knocked down by God, gets up. Next morning, she goes to the hospital for cancer surgery. They don't operate. She don't have cancer. That's what people were coming to see, right? <clears throat> we knew we had a problem. 800 people inside. 400 people milling around outside, and we're trying to pack as many people. And the fire marshal says, hmm, you know, that's really not safe. You know, uh, if the heater catches on fire and the building catches on fire, it's going to be hard to get more than your capacity for the building out. Can't let you do that. So what did we do? We owned a house next door, big two, three-story house uh, that we put the youth pastor in, in there, and we had youth functions in there. Well, we decided to give them another place, and we tore that building down and put up a circus tent. And it would seat roughly 1,500 people. Every night for a month, over 1,000 people came to church. Every night for a month. And you say, well, really, Brother Dennis, was it really that good? We had a lady off to my right. She was crippled. She's in a lawn chair every night you know, for about three weeks. She's in that lawn chair, praising God, worshiping the Lord, listening to the preaching, watching what God's doing. And a uh, guy walked over there and held out his hand and said, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Boom. She shot up out of that lawn chair and went to dancing. Went to dancing. Well, needless to say, we nearly brought the tent down. Why? Because we just saw God do something very, very, very special. Now, here's the thing. I want us to be more hungry for Father than even for all of those things. But if you put him first, you put him first and realize that it's all about him, you'll get to see those things again. You think we're joking in the morning when we say, let the, the revival continue? No. We're being, we're being set up by God. We're being prepared by God. You say, well, brother, that's how you know that. How do you see it? Look around you. Church is still here. Still going strong. Little Life Spring Bible Church. A lot of churches don't suffer the kinds of things this little church suffered in the last 12 months and make it. We're not only making it. We're like the little engine that could in the name of Jesus. Still moving forward. My granddaughters, I'm embarrassed them, I think. <laughs> they looked at their mother like, what's grandpa doing? <laughs> but how many of you believe God wants to do miraculous things again? You know, you know where my heart is. You say, Brother Dennis, you keep talking about teaching on the gifts of the Spirit, and we're heading there. We need that education. 
But say, Pastor, what, what then why are you dragging your feet? I'm not dragging my feet. But what good does it do to pursue even those magnificent peripheral things before a mighty harvest of souls based on the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and was laid in a tomb, raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, seated at the right hand of God. Yes, we're going to learn about the Holy Spirit. Just hold your horses. Just hold on a little bit. And, and your pastor, I know, I know, I believe I know, I know what God's doing. We just got to be patient. You let God unfold this thing the way he wants to unfold it, we can have it all. I'd rather, I'd rather let God set the pace for the revival than for us to, like, pull the pen on a grenade. It blows up. Wow, it's magnificent. Boom. And then it's over. God wants to bring revival that's lasting. It's penetrating. And it changes our lives and changes the lives of our loved ones and changes the lives of the lost in this city. Father, I love you. Forgive me, Father, for dragging on, but I believe you wanted me to say that. And Bless these people, Father, and let them know they're loved and they're cared for. Forgive me, Father, as a vessel today for haltingly trying to cram in this message. Father, thank you for telling me to relax, hold up, wait, and we'll just fit the rest of it in next week if Jesus tarries. Now, Father, I want to ask you in Jesus' name. All these people in this room hear my voice, and we're about to let them go. We're about to dismiss them, but... Everybody in this room right now, let them hear these words, Father. Don't let anybody leave here, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name, without giving them a special touch from you, an undeniable touch. It's not one that blows uh, out of the water our faith, that we don't need faith anymore to believe in you, because your word lays that out. We need faith to believe in you. But just give them a little touch, I pray in Jesus' name. If there's anybody in this room, Father, that has not spent time in this life building a relationship with you, just give them a little touch, Father, I pray. A little taste of you in their lives before they leave this room today. Let them know they're loved. Let them know they're cared for. Let them know that prayers are going up for them. Let them know that you are waiting patiently at the door of their heart. And all we have to do is hear that gentle knock, open the door, and let you in. Mm, thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for the cross working in our lives. Thank you for removing sin in Jesus' name, sweeping every room clean, emptying every closet. Yes, Father, take us there. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you in as much as you can. Fellowship together before you leave with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And let's live for him. Amen. Praise God.